Bibles. We'll stick to our regular schedule. How about that? And turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14. Begin reading in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19 through verse 28. Um, as is my custom, we're reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word declares, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This morning we have an opportunity to come to the close of Paul's first missionary journey. Really, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. We have an opportunity to see what he saw necessary to establish a church, to complete the work. And that's going to be an important phrase when he arrives in Antioch, that they had completed the assignment that they were given. Uh, certainly not that it was the end of his ministry, but rather of that phase of it. And we're going to see what it takes to establish a church in the uh, absence of apostolic authority. Um, once Paul and Barnabas head home uh, or head on to the next location, what does a church need? And so we're going to see that development. We looked last week at the message of, uh, of Paul to the Gentiles, and that's going to become very critical as we get into the next couple of weeks as we consider... Um, the decisions being made uh, in Jerusalem about what is God's plan for the ages. And so we are looking at churches that are uh, blended, if you will. Uh, that would be the modern term we'd probably use for it. Um, that uh, are blended between Gentiles and Jews. That are blended be, uh, in addition to Greeks and, and uh, proselytes who had been come Jews and now become Christians. And uh, so you're going to uh, have all of that needing to be addressed. But before we do so, we really need to establish these churches so that they'll survive. So it'll be more than just a few months or one generation even, but that it'll be an ongoing work of God. And we want to see that facet. And why is this so important to us? Um, because these principles don't change. They're still necessary today to have churches established, to have multi-generational and multi-ethnic uh, ministries, they are still necessary. Uh, and uh, our churches aren't surviving because largely we have abandoned these messages. This practice of Paul recognizing that for a church to endure, uh, it must have a solid foundation. And we're going to look at that foundation this morning in uh, Acts 14. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this record that you have given us of your uh, early church's activity. We thank you for the power that we see evident and the wisdom of God that they carried. And Lord, we rejoice in its record, but also in its truth and the power that is still at work in men's lives to transform them from sinners and followers of Satan to saints, followers of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that uh, it might be evident here in this place that we are of the latter rather than the former. 
And Lord, we pray for wisdom in that regard, uh, not only in, in how we do ministry, but how we live our lives. And again, we pray your Spirit's uh, liberty here, that he would guide and direct, that he might guard what is said and how it is communicated, that it might be in accordance not only with the truth of your word, but in the, with the spirit in which it was given. And we praise it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw a response, a powerful response to Paul's message. Um, we see that uh, there's the lingering response of the ones who want to oppose that message, that they come all the way down and they, they go from town to town, trailing Paul, finding out where he's at, where his ministry has become effective and stirring up trouble. That got Paul stoned. We saw that several weeks ago. Uh, and now we come into his ministry there that he doesn't, uh, as we saw before, when he had, uh, found opposition to Iconium, he stayed a long time to strengthen them. Um, we find also uh, there in uh, Derby that uh, he stays on and preaches the gospel. Uh, verse 21 tells us that they preached the gospel to that city, that is the city that he had been stoned in, made many disciples uh, that they were going to return. And now they're going to double back. And uh, the farthest extent of their missionary journey has been acquired. And as we said before, we're not very far from Tarsus, his hometown. Um, but they double back now and uh, conclude there in Derby. Uh, and by the way, the Lystra, Derby, Iconium region, um, if you want to get a little reference point of where we are in the future, uh, among the converts there, probably in Lystra, because we know that Lystra has been associated with Derby and Iconium, um, there was a woman and her mother who received Christ, who were raising a young man who, uh, in a few years, is going to be traveling with Paul, uh, a guy named Timothy. And so if you're thinking in terms of what's going on in these communities and why is uh, this description of how we establish churches uh, important uh, is certainly important for their survival, but also that they might raise up uh, men from among their own number who will serve the Lord. Uh, that they'll have servants of God prepared and ready, and we are going to find that that very uh, principle laid out before us here um, in the weeks to come, as we see Paul in his second missionary journey picking up men all along the way that are ready now. And I believe it is tied very strongly to uh, this passage. Why did that work? Why do we see the, these young churches generating these young men uh, for ministry? And we see it played out here. I believe the foundation of that is here described for us. And so uh, we want to emulate this principle. Uh, and we need to do more of it in our church planting, in our, in our church establishment. Uh, efforts here, not only in this country, but around the world. And again, I don't see anything here that is cultural, um, that somehow we can uh, just disregard. Uh-oh. There. It's back. I don't know what happened. We'll, we'll look at it here in a little bit. We'll see if it happens again. I don't know if I'm getting feedback or what, but we'll see. So, we, we have an opportunity to see how an apostle does it and the effects of that work. He's going to, they, Paul and Barnabas together, are going to double back. They're going to revisit all these places where they have already shared the gospel. Uh, the purpose is very clear. They want to establish these young congregants. Uh, sometimes they were there for an extended period of time, uh, measuring into uh, several months, uh, maybe as much as a year in some places, uh, they, this was not just a week or two. They were there for, for a while, um, but neither was it 10, 15 years in each place. And so they wanted to go back having uh, recognized that uh, they can't provide the leadership forever for these churches, that, but they do need some leadership. And so they're going to double back with uh, a, 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 an extended message uh, and this is important, that we go beyond the gospel and recognize the gospel is, uh, in terms of evangelism, is really unbalanced if it's not followed up with, with a very careful discipleship, with a very careful message 
of, okay, now you believe, so what? Certainly that was involved in Paul's and Barnabas' ministry um, during their time there, but on their return visit, uh, rather than focusing on evangelism, they focused rather on the churches to uh, give them the tools to be strengthened in their faith with an idea that they would then reach uh, their people and the next generations with that gospel message and also disciple them. This is ultimately in obedience to Matthew. And we recognize that, don't we? Uh, Go and make disciples. And that we would reference as evangelism, to bring people into a following of Jesus Christ. And then once they have chosen to become a follower of Jesus Christ, now we teach them to observe everything that God has commanded. And so Paul here in his first wave, Paul and Barnabas, in their first wave through these communities, focused on the making disciples. We're going to have people come to a commitment of following Jesus. Now on their return trip through, uh, which is probably a little quicker, um, but, but still substantial, I'm convinced, in each area, their focus and their attention is on teaching them to observe what God has commanded. And what is it going to take to have enduring faith? And so we double back and we're going to go back to Lystra, we're going to go back to Iconium, we're going to go back to Antioch. Uh, and all along the way, we have this as their ministry described in verse 22 and 23. And these are the two verses we're really going to focus in on, as well as at the end of the chapter. Uh, it says that, that we're going to use several verbs um, that are going to describe their ministry. The first one is that they are strengthening the souls of the disciples. Uh, this is a, a word that could be encouraging uh, in some of your versions, it might use that word to encourage them that they're going to strengthen their souls. They're going to they're going to uh, build them up. They're going to edify them. They are going to um, strengthen their their understanding of God's word. That of what is it that you have committed yourself to? Who is it, and what does He demand? And so He's going to instruct them and and strengthen them uh, and prepare them for what's going to be coming. And that has to be a very powerful and important facet of every church's successful ministry, is that we are involved in strengthening. Paul picks this up in many of his letters, and he tells um, church after church and his young pastors, Timothy and Titus, about the necessity of preaching the word. Not just evangelistically, but to preach the word to those within the flock, that they need to be strengthened. They need to be built up. In Ephesians, we have that famous passage, that why do we have pastors? Why do we have teachers? Why do we have these uh, in people within a church? Well, they're there to edify the saints so that the saints can then do the work of the ministry. And that is uh, one of the fundamental jobs, if you will, of the, of the church, particularly its leadership is to make sure the church is strengthened. That we are uh, have the, the, not just courage, that's going to come really more in the exhortation, um, but we are, that we have the tools, the mechanisms, we have the, the fundamental understanding of God's word and his truth to withstand uh, both assault from outside, opposition from outside the church, but perhaps even more dangerous is error that comes into the church. And we have to be able to identify it. And that's why Paul picks up uh, and talks about the Bereans and how uh, excited he was about that church. Why? Because they didn't just take everything that, that was said for face value. They, they took it and they applied it to God's Word, to what they've been taught. Uh, they, they, they considered it. And uh, only if it, if it met those standards were, did they receive it. And that's precious. Uh, if every church had been like the Bereans, we wouldn't need very much of what happens in chapter 15 uh, of Acts. We wouldn't need these councils. We wouldn't, need, uh, we, we wouldn't see a book like Galatians written for us. Why? Because these problems that were created within the church were generally the result of the church just indiscriminately hearing whoever came in and talked to it. And because they simply 
you know, so if a Judaizer showed up and seemed to have some charisma or some reference to the truth, we would all jump on his bandwagon and we'd be following him right into circumcision and keeping the law. And Paul's like, you're foolish for doing that. And by the way, those churches that he's talking about are these churches. And so his ministry of strengthening them didn't end just in this visit back. Um, but rather, it's going to continue in the midst of writing letters. He saw some dangers already that could come into the church. And so he wants to strengthen them. And he's going to persist in that endeavor through his ecclesiastical letters that he wants to strengthen these men and uh, the leadership of them, these churches, to uh, withstand against error that's introduced as well as opposition that comes from the outside. And we're going to see that really drawn out uh, here later in the verse. And so we want to strengthen the souls. We want to teach them that they need to know God's Word and have a capacity to understand it and to recognize error when it comes in. And even if you don't recognize it, of just being careful, of, of realizing that I have a responsibility to take what I have heard and to filter it. And the filter isn't me. The filter isn't your belief system. The filter is God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Those are the tools God's given us to filter out the messages we hear. And you all are inundated, or you could be inundated, with a lot of messages. We have printed material um, that is, I mean, you walk into a Christian bookstore, of course, a lot of the Christian bookstores don't print material anymore. It's mostly just gadgets and doo-wops to put on your wall and shelves. Um, books are the least that bookstores sell. Did you know that? That's the, that's the smallest commodity that they sell are books at a bookstore, Christian bookstore. Mostly they just sell little trinkets, um, which tells you where our Christianity is heading. Um, or has headed or is. And so you walk into there and we have all this printed material. Well, outside of the Bibles they're selling there, none of that is inspired and needs to be examined and considered and, and evaluated and held up against God's Word and, and considered carefully whether we want to adopt what's there or not. And, and sometimes we can do some uh, cherry-picking of good stuff, but uh, if we have to do a lot of that, um, then it's just best sometimes to just set that aside. So we have that that's readily available to you um, outside of the parameters of the church. We also have uh, Christian media. And again, that is outside the parameters of the church in terms of the local church. Uh, and I don't know how much you're exposing yourself to that. I don't know who you're listening to. I don't know what you're reading. Um, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not a media Nazi. I'm not going to sit there and, and require you to report to me everything you see or hear. Um, but rather, we need to recognize that because this is outside the, the parameters of the local church, I have to take extra precautions because now it is up to me, only me, to filter out this information to determine is this truth or is this error. And to do that effectively, there is one book that you better know inside and out, upside down and backwards, right? It's God's Word. And if you don't have a proficiency with God's Word, I would contend that you need to spend more time in God's Word and less time listening to everybody else says about it. Less time reading other media and listening to that. You need to be immersed in God's Word. And that's one of the things I appreciate so much um, in my early years was how much I had to read of the Bible. Uh, that I couldn't go to the library, check out a bunch of books, and write a paper. That wasn't allowed. I wasn't permitted to do that in several of my seminary classes, particularly, that if I quoted too many sources and used too many long quotations, um, my grade went down. wasn't what they wanted. They wanted you to spend time in God's Word and to... Uh, use God's Word to interpret God's Word, bring its meaning out and communicate it as your own. So they could evaluate and see, are you being able to filter things through the Scriptures? And that requires you to know the Scriptures. And so I'm a little cautious with brand new Christians, and I can almost see Paul and Barnabas here having the same kind of spirit and attitude 
that uh, I'm not going to give you a bunch of, of Christian books to read. I really uh, hesitate to do that um, because my fear is that if I recommend it, that you're going to think that everything in there is acceptable and should be followed. Uh, there's only one book that has my complete approval, and it is the Bible. <laughs> Period. Um, and so, what does a new believer need to do? They need to be in God's Word. By the way, old believers, mature believers need to be, they already know they should be in God's Word, and they enjoy it. Um, but for new believers, oh, I am so cautious in saying, read this book, read this book. Even discipleship books, I am very hesitant to just give them out. I don't want anything to supplant God's Word as the source of truth. And so when we talk about strengthening the souls of the disciples, of building up and, and, and giving them the means to, to address the things they're going to encounter both in the world and within the church and within the broader church and the medias that are out there, um, oh, they need to know God's Word. And that's why the focus and attention of our church is on the Bible. That you're going to bring your Bible, whether it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night, you're going to bring your Bible. Wednesday night, you're going to bring your Bible. Uh, why do we want so emphatically our children to read the Bible? Because that's where it begins. They need to know the stories. They need to know that. They need to know um, from creation through Noah, through Joseph and, and Abraham and, and Isaac, Jacob, uh, they need to know about Moses and, and the Exodus. They need to know all those accounts. They need to go through those judges. They need to know who Joshua was and, and when he was succeeded and when he failed. And, and he, they need to know what happened with the judges, how one generation messed up, the next generation got straight, the next generation messed up. They need to know all those judges, the stories of Samson and, and uh, his failures, as well as how God used him and all of those judges in the last great judge Samuel, and then the transition into the kings. They need to know all of this. And the best time for them to learn that is in their youth. These all strengthen our souls. Because now we can reference them as we encounter uh, other teachings and as we encounter circumstances and and I can reference all of this that I know out of God's Word, and, and I need to know the life of Christ, and I need to know His parables, I need to know His teachings, I, I need to know His miracles, I need to be able to put my finger on them very quickly. At least get me in the right book. At least get yourself close to right, right chapter. Somewhere in there, you need to know God's Word. You need to be able to go into the epistles and, and know their themes you need to be able to uh, at least pick out a handful of chapters that if I gave you the faith chapter and the love chapter, you would be able to immediately come up with, oh, well, that's this book, this chapter, um, just to begin. And if you can't do those things, then my challenge to you is you don't need to be reading anything else. You need to be reading God's Word every day, substantial portions of it. Because your soul needs to be strengthened. I'm convinced, of course, now, Paul and Barnabas, in the apostolic age here, the, the scriptures aren't completed. And so they're in the midst of this, and these regions are going to be getting one of those uh, inspired letters. They're going to be receiving the book of Galatians. Um, and they're going to be given the instruction from them. Uh, and most of these churches are going to be receiving letters from Paul, uh, whether it's directed to them specifically or circular letters they're going to be receiving inspired writings. Paul is to strengthen them in their faith. They need to know the prophets. They need to know Isaiah. Inside and out. You need to know where the suffering servant is described. These are all, this is all information that you should have uh, quick, ready knowledge of. So that you have the strength to stand. That they are edified. That they are that you are uh, braced, that you have the spiritual muscle to hold ground that God has given you. The second verb here that they went in and exhorted or encouraged, uh, challenged them, uh, exhortation uh, involves a calling to action. Um, it involves some warning sometimes too. 
And that's what we're going to see, the warning. It says, exhorting them to continue in the faith. So once you get your rudimentary strength, your, your proteins, if you will, once you get the, the muscle to uh, stand fast, that's not all you need. That, that's one facet. And by the way, I have known some uh, people who have that, who have the muscle, but not the will. I've had friends who've gone into the ministry who were trained as I was trained, who were as committed to God's Word as I am committed to God's Word, and they're not in the ministry today at all. Not just not at all in terms of not being a pastor. They're not even serving the local church that they're attending if they're attending it. You say, how does that happen? Because you need more than just muscle. You need will. You need a commitment. You need to be strengthened not only in in your knowledge of God's Word, but also in your obedience to God's Word and to endure. And I like to use the example from the battlefield because very, well, first of all, God's Word uses it and I I think it's appropriate because we are in a battle and that's what he's describing here. He is getting soldiers ready to stand. And... On the battlefield, you're not going to be sitting there teaching them how to use their weapons. They've already had all of that instruction, right? We do that before we get to the battlefield. (laughs) Uh, We want to give them how to use their weapons, um, how to uh, uh, march, how to have the discipline, how to understand tactics. We give them all of that training and facilitation before we get to the battlefield. But... There's something the battlefield demands. And it demands this word, exhortation. And we hear that the great battle leaders throughout history were able to take their men and to inspire them with the task ahead of them. That yes, even some of you are going to die, but that we will not diminish from this task. We will not shrink away. We will not shirk our duties. We will not turn tail and run. We will stand, and though we are outnumbered, we will stand to the last man. And that is the word exhortation. It is more than just the information we need. Now it is the motivation we need. To take what we have learned, to take this strengthening that we have and now apply it consistently to our life that that I will do what God's Word calls me to do and that is to endure. And to do so needs our souls not only strengthened first but then exhorted to continue. Stand fast. Don't let up. Don't give up. Don't run away. Because you're running away to nothing. Isn't that what Hebrews says? What's better? Ours is the best. We have, the, we have a better sacrifice. We have a, a, a better priest. We have, we have everything better. You leave this, what do you got left? If you fall away, how can you be brought back? There's nothing superior. And so this needs to be a facet of church. That not only are we teaching the information of God's word, but that we are also exhorting one another, that we, are, that, we are, that we are holding each other up. The first one says, I'm going to build you up so that you can stand on your own two feet. And now that you're on your own two feet, I'm going to come alongside and steady you. Courage, man. Stand. And that ministry, again, goes on. And we see, again, evidenced in Paul's writing later on in the epistles where he just wants them to to take a stand, to hold on, to endure. Don't forget what brought you here. And and you pick it up in all of these letters that uh, whether they are there to, uh, like Philippians, that's that's more of a a challenge and, and you don't see a lot of rebuke. Um, there, but and then you have Corinthians where they're doing a lot of things wrong. But all along there, it's this: keep at it. You need to follow through. You need to last. You need to endure. You need to take these precautions in your life so that you are ready 
to take that stand. And you're going to need these props on a regular basis. I think it's funny when people describe, uh, you know, religion as a crutch as if people without religion don't use crutches. Um, we, are, we, are the, we, we are the props for each other to strengthen and to hold fast in that line. And, and uh, some of the Roman army tactics were, were just incredible in that regard of, of how they uh, challenged each other and were so committed to one another that those lines just held. That they understood the tactics, that they, they implemented it perfectly, and they had complete trust of their leadership, of their generals, centurions. And they conquered the world. And this we see over and over again, not just a tactical advantage, but an advantage in the hearts of the men that followed this leadership and would go to the ends of the earth for that leadership. I would sacrifice all. This is the commitment that we need to have to Jesus Christ that brings endurance, that says I'm not going to shrink away and fall away uh, when I don't get my way. When things don't go the way I thought they should go, um, I'm on the road. See you later. It is... Normal for men to shrink away, to run rather than stand. It is extraordinary for them to stand. And great leaders are able to draw out the extraordinary from the ordinary. And that is our task. As a church that we draw out an extraordinary commitment to living God's word, one with the other, against the world, that we might win the world. Well, how do you do that? Here's his statement, verse 22. <laughs> Here's what he says. This is him exhorting them to continue in the faith. Um, we must, through much tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's not how preachers say it today, is it? Oh, I've heard them. You know, oh, you just name it and claim it and God's going to provide it for you, right? It's already there. You just got to reach out and grab it. Sounds like Satan and the apple, doesn't it? How similar that message is to his message. Just look at it and lust after it and then eat it. It's not going to hurt you. Um, no, the way you challenge and encourage each other is not to deny the opposition, nor to join the opposition, not to buckle under, but rather to identify the opposition, that there is going to be tribulation. And it's harmful to the church to deny it, and it's harmful to the church not to experience it. And we have not experienced extensive tribulation. Uh, we think it's hardship if we... Um, you know, if the seats don't have quite enough padding to last the whole sermon, um, if the building isn't quite warm enough or is too warm, that's suffering. If I if I got a flat tire on the way to church, that's tribulation. Um, that's nothing. And shame on us if those little things can dissuade us from following after God. That's how weak our faith is that little trials of life that everybody experiences because our world is running down and is tainted by sin because illness and injury, death, uh, disease happen because of sin. If, if, if that stops us, if every little temptation we succumb to stops us, um, then we have to go back and work on the strengthening part. <laughs> but if we are truly strengthened, we should be exhorted and ready and facing real tribulation. Where people say, it's us or him. And I know some of you have been faced with that decision. Um, strength, uh, incredibly, I've been faced with that decision. Uh, it's follow Christ or follow them. 
us or them, him. Um, and we have to stand fast by a knowledge that tribulation is inevitable for the believer. And, and again, we're going to talk about our tribulation a little differently than maybe them being stoned to death or being chased out of town or, or um, shipwrecked. The things that occurred to Paul, uh, to Barnabas, we're going to look at some of that here very shortly. Um, but we need to recognize that tribulation is going on. Once we recognize the enemy, now we recognize we have to fight this enemy. Once we recognize we have to fight this enemy, we steal ourselves. We encourage, we bring courage in that you're going to have to confront this and you're going to have to take a stand. Time and again, I've challenged in our youth and our young people to stand. And time and again, they walk away from it. Some grown up in church. They know the stories. They've heard the accounts. And they have chosen foolishly not to endure. Why? Because they didn't identify the tribulation as tribulation. They didn't see the fruit on that tree as the enemy. They saw it as something to enjoy. And all it brought was death. And so, I will not fail to tell them that there is a choice they must make and that tribulation confronts them and that there are consequences if you shirk, if you shy away, if you become a coward for Christ. Um, Christ says that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. And that ought to make a shake in our boots. about the decisions we're making. You must, it's an imperative, you must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. You want the kingdom of God? Well, it's not a Cadillac that's going to drive you there. It's just not going to be that comfortable. There's no limo service. Kingdom of God... Uh, we, we arrive at via a path of tribulation and shame of us for communicating anything differently. And if your mind, you think that the Christian life is a coast, um, you haven't been coming here. You haven't heard that from me. Christian life is work. It is an endeavor. It is the extraordinary. And it requires... In- Incredible courage and boldness that requires requires incredible resolve. I will stand. I've tried to put this before my family in, in both subtle ways and not so subtle ways. At the end of the hallway where they all slept, where all their bedrooms is, there's a little something on the wall. I don't know if they ever read it. But it's there, and I know it's there. And I put it there for my children to see every day when they go to their bedroom. And it's a framed thing. It's called the Fellowship of the Unashamed. And it's seeking to communicate, will you take this kind of stand in your life? It's a reminder that you're going to have opposition And that every day, the decisions you make matter of whether you are going to endure or shrink away. And so this message was there, and we need to be about that message. Instead of being little Christian weenies that whine and complain every time something doesn't go our way, we should be rejoicing. We are counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake. Lord, increase our faith that we might, through much tribulation, many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The next verb we come to, to establish a church. So we have the teaching ministry, we have the exhortation ministry, 
to endure. Keep it up to draw out the extraordinary that God has placed in us through His Spirit. In verse 23, it says that we also need leadership. They appointed elders in every church. So a church needs to teach God's Word. A church needs to embolden itself and each other for the uh, battle that we are engaged in. But we also need leadership. God has designed that. And we see... I see in the, in the ecclesiastical movements and, and things I'm hearing and reading, uh, especially on the internet, um, we see a strong undercurrent against the fact that the church needs any leadership. And that really just isn't the case. It hasn't been the case from the very beginning. God established a leadership for the, for the people, these under-shepherds. These shepherd boys who, yes, they have a, a over-shepherd, Jesus Christ, but they have a responsibility um, under him among the flock to lead it. And consistently we find that the apostles recognize that very early on in a church's existence, they need to have established leadership. Men who will not just teach and and but will lead by example. They will lead um, in prayer. They will lead in the study of God's Word. They will lead by living uh, the truth of God's Word. They will put it into practice in their lives. They will call other men to it. And uh, they will provide that leadership in many different facets of living. And so Paul as, and Barnabas go through and they say, Okay, um, now, you've been Christians for a little while. For some of these churches, it's been maybe two years since they've been there. Those early churches, Antioch and, and the early churches on their trip, it's been several years. They said, okay, now you know from among yourselves, and we can easily identify those who are substantially committed to God's Word and, and to following Jesus Christ, and it's time that we identify them for leadership and place them and appoint them into those tasks and so in every church, it says in every church they appointed elders. These that are to be looked up to, that are to be recognized as leadership, that will uh, follow after God as they follow after God, you follow after them. But what we find instead in our age if, is an age of critical rebellion against leadership. Now, has there been failure in leadership in churches? Yes, I don't deny that. I don't deny that there have been pastors who have gone after money. Uh -huh. There are pastors who have fallen to immorality. There are pastors who are compromising God's word. Absolutely, and I am ready to call them on the carpet at any time. But never will you hear me call for the end of pastors or deacons. Or teachers. Never. I would just as soon call for the end of parents and families. God's word has established that to strengthen and to endure, to, to uh, be a church and to do the work of the church requires godly leadership. Leadership that has upon it a level of expectation that we've already studied here in the book of Acts when we looked at, at uh, the leadership of the church and the distinction between these who are going to take care of the physical needs of the church to distinguish these they need to take care of the spiritual needs of the church and that together they serve the church and the church might grow mightily and endure. Paul recognized this need. Barnabas saw it and they, and they knew that they couldn't provide that always as they needed it, but the church needed it always, and so they identified it from among the leadership in each, or they identified leadership from among the people in each church. And still to this day, this is the demand. If our church is going to succeed, it needs to have godly, Bible-grounded leadership that will follow by example. First, they'll follow Christ, and we'll follow them. This is a requirement that we have too many places thrown out and thought we didn't need it and have spoken 
wickedly against it. And that is rebellion. And that is not of God. It is of Satan. Do we recognize disqualified leadership when it has done sin? Absolutely. But we do not dismiss the office because some have disgraced the office. Rather, we become more committed to identifying those who are worthy and made worthy of that role. The next thing that they did in verse 23 after identifying leadership is, and I'm really rushing, I feel like I should preach six sermons on these six verbs. Um, They prayed with fasting. And ultimately, we can do all these other things right. (laughs) We can have pretty good leadership. We can accept that role of encouraging to bring out the extraordinary out of us that we might stand against tribulations that we encounter. We can be strengthened by the teaching of God's word and we can still fail miserably if we don't immerse all of it in prayer. I've had at various times people comment on um, even the pastoral prayer during our morning worship service. Um, some of it's just in good fun. I'm timing you, Pastor. I've had 12-year-olds go, oh, you, pre- you prayed for this long this morning. Um, to some who said, you know, services could be shorter if you just didn't have that long prayer in it. I was like, is five, six minutes really that important to you that you can't spend it in prayer? Um, it is no mistake that the weakness of our churches has to be derived from the weakness of our praying. In our fellowship particularly, I am disconcerted by the lack of prayer. And, and we have moved our prayer time from Thursday to Sunday night after church uh, with the hopes that, that we would get more participation in that. Uh, and maybe one day we need to transplant the whole Sunday night service to just prayer um, as we did on our Thursday nights. Um, but we must be committed to this act if we are going to endure as a church. We must be committed, not only to private, personal prayer time, and that must be there. Pray without ceasing, the Bible tells us. That's personal. But corporate prayer, that we're going to pray together. Remember what started this whole missionary thing was five men who gathered together and said, we're going to pray and see what God wants to have done. So, no, I don't believe that we have to have the largest service of the church necessarily be our prayer service. It ought to be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, it's not the numbers game. It's the commitment game that we're going to immerse this in prayer. A lot of our churches have Wednesday night prayer services in our fellowship of churches. Many are abandoning those services, those midweek services. Many of them have abandoned the prayer time of them. and They just become another Bible study. And we wonder, why are we so weak? They've prayed with fasting. Before they do the next last act, they recognize we've got to bathe these churches in prayer. And over and over again, throughout the epistles, you'll find Paul talking about, I'm praying for you, and he is constantly begging them, please pray for me. Read through those epistles. Even churches that are weak, that are in sin, he says, please pray for me. And I'm, when he says, I thank God for you, that's a prayer, folks. <laughs> when he starts those epistles up, I thank my God for every remembrance of you, that's a prayer. And he recognizes that he must bathe these churches in prayer for, for this is the means, the, the, the link to the power of God in their lives and that he is only a man and can only do so much and really only do a very little for very few. I think every pastor recognizes I really can do very little for very few people. I have my own limitations. 
There's a, there needs to be a willingness for people to receive that ministry. There needs to be opportunity. There needs to be knowledge. Uh, I really do very little for very few people as your pastor. I would love to do more for more, but I recognize that I can't. Either because of my limitations or because of yours. And so, we pray to the one who has no limitations. And we need to commit our ministry, our lives, and bathe it in prayer to establish churches to endure. Finally, verse 23, it says, They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Ultimately, this isn't my church. It's God's. It's not your church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Ownership is his. And in the end, Paul and Barnabas recognized that we need to let the Lord do his work in people. And this has been, I'm convinced that this is as hard for Paul as it is for me. (laughs) Um, To just step back and say, taught God's word. I've challenged you to endure tried to provide godly leadership in your life, praying for you, and at some point I just have to stand back and just... There they are, Lord. And just commend them to God. And say, Lord, if this is your child, you've got to do that work. I can't do it anymore. I've done what you've called me to do. I've done what we can do. And this is true not only of pastors, but of each other, within our church family, within your own individual families. There comes a point to just commend them to God and say, the Lord's going to have to finish what he began in you. I've done my part, and I'll continue to do my part as long as I'm earth. I think you see that in all Paul's writings where he describes the fact that as long as I'm in this flesh, I'm going to serve the Lord. You know, I'm going to pour myself out for you. You know, he tells the Thessalonians, you know, I gave you everything I have. And I do it all again. I don't regret it. Um, You're you're precious in my sight. Um, You're the things I live for. But I'm not enough. Ultimately, um, we commend this to God because we can do everything right, even the prayer, and we still have one element to contend with. The God himself will not override. And that element is the will of man. It's your choice. You can have the best Bible training. You can have the most <laughs> uh, exhilarating and inspiring, charismatic person in your life. You can even live with them. The best leadership. You can uh, have prayers following you everywhere, and your will still stands in the way. And at that point, all the servant of God do is commend them to the Lord. Lord, you work in their way. And they, they've made a proclamation that they have surrendered their will to your will. That's what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I surrender. I give up. I'm yours. I'll follow you instead of me, or instead of them, or instead of him. I'm going to follow the Lord. They've made that proclamation. Now you have to finish the work that you've begun in them. And we commend them to God. And at that point, it doesn't end my responsibility to them. Paul doesn't conclude his responsibility to his church. He's going to come back and visit them, he's going to write them letters. He's going to be praying for them. His responsibility to them doesn't end once he commends them to God, but he recognizes that ultimately it is not his work, but God's work that must bring fruit in their life. 
He is simply an instrument. But he's not the only instrument. He is one instrument. And God may bring many other instruments. And, and he tells us in Corinthians, you know, that, well, I did my part and Apollos did his part and these people do their part and Peter did his part and, and we're all doing our parts. But ultimately, it's Jesus Christ that has to do the work in you. So we commend you to God. You believe in him. We'll fulfill our responsibility, but don't think that because you don't have an, a, a victorious Christian life that it's somehow the fault of all these things. Because there's still one element that stands, and that is your will. And you can have all the right Bible teaching, you have all the inspiring encouragement and exhortation, you can have all the right leadership, the good examples to follow, you can have it cloaked in prayer, enveloped in prayer, you can recognize there's opposition, all of that, and you can still stand in rebellion. You can still walk away. God will allow it to happen because he will not violate even in its stained sinful condition. He will not violate his image in you. The church ultimately has to be commended to God and we have to wait on him for the blessings And so they recognized that they didn't know when they would be coming back. They didn't know when the next time they'd ever have influence or ministry there. But they knew that if you truly believe in the Lord, He will maintain your faith. He will bring others into your life to fulfill these roles. And so we commend them to God, knowing that the Lord will finish what He begins as he has promised, if we allow him. Well, they're traveling back home, and I'm going to have to preach another message. They're traveling back and uh, visiting all these places they'd already come to. They're going to skip Cyprus. We're not exactly sure why they didn't go back into that region. Um, There's one town that uh, we have some unfinished business to do and uh, that wasn't establishing a church. And I want to speak to this because I think it addresses what happens if we fail on any level. They come to Perga. And in Perga, they couldn't establish a church. They couldn't do what they had done in the other churches in the other cities that they administered, they had to do this. Look at here at Perga. It says in verse 25, Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Why did they have to preach the word in Perga? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the journey, not the beginning, but at the point where they came to Perga, um, early on in the journey, one of the things that we're going to find out is that something happened in Perga earlier. And that which happened at Perga... Um, was a descent. That's back in chapter 13, verse 13. When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. And they departed from Perga. There's no evidence that they preached in Perga yet. And so when they come to Perga, they hadn't really preached the gospel. They hadn't done the evangelism part. And I'm convinced that it is because of the discouragement and the discord that that was created over dealing with John Mark and his abandonment of them, of, of his... It, and, and we don't have a lot of information about what happened there, but Perga uh, suffered as a result of this turmoil among the ministry team. That here you have Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and they land in Perga, and whatever was going on there, whether it was a contention be amongst the three, whether it was John Mark thinking that Paul was getting too much and his cousin wasn't, 
Um, we, we, we have, some people just say he was homesick. Um, we have no real idea. But what we understand is that it was a complete distraction to, them, to ministry. And when they were finished with that, they just got out of town. And we don't find them preaching the gospel there. We don't find a body of saints there. We don't find any opposition because nothing happened. So on their way back, while they're establishing the believers in all these other towns, they come to Perga and they have to do step one. They have to preach the word. They have to do what they did in the other cities on the way out. And I just want to share with you that when we introduce contention, that we introduce, and like I said, we can imagine anything. We can imagine this is John Mark's fault uh, entirely. Um, We can uh, put any, we don't know. We just don't know. Which is, to me, great. Because now I can insert anything (laughs) that we see today that brings contention and division within ministry. When we are so busy, we don't know if John Mark committed some sin and left. Um, The evidence from Paul is that he left of his own accord. Or if there was jealousy, we don't know. So insert anything that causes division and disruption within the ministry of God's people. And what happens? The necessary elements of ministry are sacrificed. Perga hadn't heard the gospel. And three men whose mission was to share the gospel were in their town and they didn't hear the gospel. And I'm going to tell you that it's John Mark's fault. Whatever was going on there, whatever discouragement or division or dissension, whatever was happening there, and it doesn't, I mean, this, is, this isn't, a, it, was, it was big to Paul, big to Barnabas too, really. It's going to cause more division later on. It persists. Whatever John Mark did to let these two down interrupted their ministry in Perga to such a degree that the gospel didn't get preached. And so on their way back, establishing churches, when they get to Perga, Luke makes a point of saying when they got to Perga, they did what they didn't get to do the first time. They preached the word. They made sure the gospel got sounded out there because they weren't satisfied that they really did their job the first time through. And the only thing I can see that pulled Perga out of this list of places they went to is that there, there was division. There was dissent. There was disagreement. There was abandonment. And all of that hinders ministry. Brethren, we have a responsibility that if we really want the gospel to go out, we really want souls to be strengthened, we want, we want uh, people to be exhorted, and, and we want leadership established, and we want prayer going on, and we, we want the, the commendation of uh, being commended to God. If we want all of this to occur, we have a responsibility to pull our weight and not be the drag. Not be the distraction because we're focused on ourselves. At some point, John Mark focuses all on himself somehow and determined to leave. Whether it was a poor me, whatever mentality, insert it all because I've seen it all in ministry. I've been in ministry long. I think I've seen it all. And what it does is it stops the real ministry from happening. And Paul and Barnabas, as faithful stewards of God's word, once they were back in town, realized, you know, we were totally distracted by all that stuff with John Mark and we never really preached here like we should have. So we're going to preach here now. And they covered that base. But a city of Perga is a few years behind everybody else. One visit short of everyone else. 
And then Paul and Barnabas are going to sail back home. We're going to talk about heading back home and the authority of the local church in sending its missionaries and requiring something back from them. And we're going to see that next week. But what a challenge, isn't it? What does it take for our church to stand? What does it take for you to stand? Paul understood it. He was led by the Spirit, and he knew what he needed to do. The gospel isn't all there is. There's so much more. Get strengthened. Be exhorted. Follow leadership. Immerse it in prayer. And recognize that ultimately your trust is in the Lord and not in men, not in yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a great testimony here by Paul and Barnabas and the wisdom that you put into him to give these churches what they needed if they would follow it to stand, to endure, to grow, to prosper spiritually in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray you might give this church the wisdom to apply these same principles consistently and then to respond to them, to submit ourselves to them. We might see your hand upon us. That we might not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That we might not shirk and be cowardly in the face of opposition. That we might not be rebellious to the leadership you've established. That we might not be forgetful in our prayers. Lord, we take the time now to commend this ministry to you. That you might guard it, strengthen it, direct it. We surrender. We want your will to be done here in this place as it is in heaven. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.